Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Higher education was in the spotlight at the Idaho legislature this week. Two years into the pandemic, how are Idaho's public colleges and universities faring? I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, President Gordon Jones of College of Western Idaho and President Cynthia Pemberton of Lewis Clark State College joined me to discuss staff retention and student outcomes in higher education. Then associate producer Logan Finney gives us an update on the Supreme Court decision on Idaho's legislative redistricting map. But first, on Monday, the Department of Health and Welfare reactivated crisis standards of care for three of Southern Idaho's public health districts due to a critical shortage of healthcare staff as well as blood products for transfusions and certain treatments. The department authorizes crisis standards of care when there are more patients in need of care than there are resources available to help everyone at the same level they're used to experiencing. In the last week, the state continues to break new records for daily COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to rise. Elki Shah Tulloch from the Division of Public Health joined me on Friday morning to discuss this latest surge in cases, as well as the reactivation of crisis standards of care. But this particular wave is different. Um, this, the surge, the massive amount of people coming to the hospital isn't necessarily quite as high as it was before, although it's getting a little bit higher. But what we're seeing this time around are kind of two main issues. They already have the, the staffing challenges they had back from the fall with people leaving to go to other professions or just taking time off, or they're already stressed and, and maxed out, so they're needing to take some vacation time. And then placed on top of that is a large, large number of staff that we're hearing about across the state that are out who they themselves are sick, or they're on isolation or quarantine from being exposed, or they're having to take care of family members who are sick. And then also we're seeing, um, they're hearing from hospitals that staff are also out because sometimes their schools are closed for their kids and then they need to be able to stay home and take care of their kids. So it's kind of became this perfect storm of a lot of, a lot of challenges really dominating why staff are out. And then coupled with that, this, this time around for crisis standards of care activation is because of the national uh, blood supply shortage and that, the critical nature of that. So those are the, the two kind of primary things that have, are, make this surge, this, this declaration different than the last. Right now, as we're speaking on Friday morning, crisis standards of care is active for three uh, public health districts in Southern Idaho. Is the rest of the state soon to follow? Well, I think that, that we've stated quite a bit that it's very hard to have a crystal ball and know exactly what's going to happen. <clears throat> Excuse me, we um, you know, are, are listening to our healthcare providers and our hospitals every single day on our medical operations coordination cell calls. We're um, you know, paying close attention to what their staffing issues are, what their um, blood supply and other resource needs are. Uh, we know that there are some significant stressors in other parts of the state. And, and as the director has used the term 
um, before it's fragile for sure. I mean, we hear that even in you know from the the hospitals themselves. So, you know, it's it's really hard to predict if the if the cases start coming down, then and people are doing those actions that we talk about every single media briefing, you know, getting vaccinated, wearing our masks, making sure that we're really protecting ourselves, which in turn protects our communities, which then in turn protects the staffing in these facilities. And the stressors and and people step forward and and donate blood and help contribute to the cause um i think all those can change it quickly and maybe we won't need to declare um throughout the rest of the state but it is fragile and it could be kind of at, at any moment given um you know what the hospitals say to us but i listen every single day and it is certainly tenuous and one day they might be feeling somewhat okay and the next day they've got a tremendous amount of staff that are out really posing some huge challenges. So it's it's not an easy answer to your question. One last question. Uh, crisis standards of care and healthcare services aren't just affected for patients who have COVID. This is affecting all patients who are seeking healthcare right now. Correct. Yeah, and, and I would even extend that a little bit further because it's almost a domino effect that we talked about um, last, uh, this week on our media briefing where you know, even our primary care clinics are seeing significant shortages of staffing and we've seen primary care clinics closed. And so those are the places that people can go for routine care, wellness checks, screenings, things like that to help keep them healthy. It's also the place they go for some of those urgent needs as well. You know, a strep throat test, a, um, a, you know, broken finger or sutures or something, which then if those clinics are closed, then drives them towards the hospital setting. Hospital setting is already taxed. They're trying to transfer patients out to long-term care facilities that also have staffing shortages. So like we were talking about, it creates this bottleneck that is incredibly challenging. And which might mean that people can't get the care they need. They might not be able to go to an urgent care clinic to get their their sprained finger <laughs> taken care of, or they might not be able to readily be able to go to a location and get a strep throat test for their child. Or if they go to the, and kind of switching over to the hospital setting, you know, that's what we're seeing is that if there's no staff there available, they're just kind of taking, we want people to seek healthcare and when they should go if they have, you know, an important need to go. Um, but it d does make a difference. You know, those surgeries that, that have the ability to wait are going to have to those um you know there might not be a bed available they might they might be holding you know tens of patients in a, an emergency department waiting for them to get transferred into onto a floor or into a long-term care facility meaning that their emergency department is full so there's a lot of ripple effect for those um you know people who need health care that aren't specifically covid related but they are definitely covid impacted all right, Elki Shaw, Tolak, Idaho Department of Health and Welfare, thank you so much for joining us today. To hear our full conversation, visit the Idaho Reports YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. And on this week's Idaho Reports podcast, Dr. Walter Kelly, medical officer for the American Red Cross Lewis and Clark region, joins me to discuss the emergency blood shortage affecting Idaho and the rest of the country. You can find the Idaho Reports podcast on your favorite podcast player or at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. 
Meanwhile, the Idaho legislature continues to debate the best way to offer tax relief to Idahoans. On Thursday, the Senate Tax Committee voted to send the income tax and rebate bill to the Senate floor. That $600 million proposal would offer one-time tax rebates as well as reduce the top-tier income and corporate tax bracket from 6.5 to 6%. That Senate floor vote is the final legislative hurdle for the bill and is expected next week. Democratic lawmakers held a press conference before Thursday's hearing outlining their own slate of alternative proposals called the Idaho Working Families Agenda. The proposal includes eliminating the tax on groceries, enhancing the child tax credit, and funding local governments to provide property tax relief. We call it the $600 million question. Um, what, and the question being, what is the better usage of this $600 million? So we know on the right here what, will, uh, what, what House Bill 436 will do, that is again going to committee in the next two hours. Um, yes, at various times we have been shot down, I believe on every single one of these proposals. The legislature's Joint Budget Committee heard higher education budget requests and presentations this week. After last year's high-profile fights over whether colleges and universities were teaching critical race theory, a controversy that resulted in lawmakers cutting $2.5 million from the initial higher education budget proposal, Representative Ron Nate asked Boise State University President Dr. Marlene Trump for an update on BSU's social justice programs. What measures has Boise State University taken to reduce that kind of wasteful spending? I think it was $1.5 million directed at BSU in terms of uh, getting rid of that spending. We ensured that we, we've always taken any concerns that we have raised serious, very seriously, and we have policies and processes in place, and the services we pr provide to our students are the services they've requested, they've asked for. All of these include what are arguably social justice um, principles Mr. Chairman, in their mission statement. I object. Representative Nate, is there a question in there? I'm actually seeing an increase in social justice programming. Am I missing something at Boise State? What we've done at Boise State and what we aim to do from the very beginning was to really evolve our programming and to ensure that our programming was meeting student needs. Again, instead of hearing to Mr. cut Chairman, back on social I justice programs, Mr. Chairman, I should be able to ask a question that is budget related without being interrupted. On Friday, Representative Nate asked the same question to University of Idaho President C. Scott Green. We did take your concerns about social justice and, and indoctrination seriously. To the great credit of our legislature, H -Bill, uh, House Bill 377 protects academic freedom and freedom of speech, thus protecting Idaho's colleges and universities from government making decisions about what can and cannot be taught. It is the central committees and politburos of the present and past in communist countries that dictate what can and can't be taught, primarily to maintain power. And they would also would not want social justice or human, uh, humanitarian subjects to be taught either. So we appreciate the protections afforded by House Bill 377. But that law also forbids another tool used by central committees and politburos in countries past and present and ensures no one can require students to affirm, adopt, or adhere to any specific belief. In short, it takes away the tool of indoctrination. 
I was confident that there was no indoctrination or affirm affirmation program at the University of Idaho. And while I was confident of that, certain conflict entrepreneurs and those who earn their living by scaring people with such illusions have made these claims, which surfaced and were used to cut our budget last year. We wanted to be sure and ensure that we were following Idaho law in deed and in spirit. While some lawmakers wanted to talk about critical race theory and social justice programs, university and college presidents spent their week focused on important issues facing their institutions, such as tuition and staff retention. On Friday, President Cynthia Pemberton of Lewis Clark State College and President Gordon Jones of College of Western Idaho joined me to discuss the unique challenges facing higher education two years into the pandemic. Thank you both so much for joining me today. President Pemberton, I wanna start with you. How would you describe the current state of higher education in Idaho? Well, let me answer that question by taking us on a near-term journey. When I was hired, it was July 2018, so not that far away. And we rolled from that early start into budget cuts. There were a series of holdbacks and budget cuts that were imposed across higher education. And from there, we rolled into a pandemic. And now we're in year two of a pandemic. And we're also in a scenario where not only do we have pretty extreme financial pressures, but also a crazy job market with salaries that are escalating by the day across across different job markets and positions and work groups. So what's the state of higher education? It's one that I characterized this week in some conversations in the legislature as navigating the perfect storm. It, would you agree, President Jones, is this a perfect storm? And if so, how do you navigate it? Well, I, I would agree with Cynthia. I do think that this has really got a lot of dynamics at work in the state of both higher ed nationally and here in Idaho. But um, I'm coming from Boise State. I'm 15 days on the job at CWI. I think that um, we both face the same issue is, is how do we make sure that the value of our institutions stays above all those things? Because we believe there is a, a durable, ever-present value that we can offer Idahoans, specifically around public education, which to me is the idea of the promise of economic and social mobility. And the ability that where I am today is not limited by where I am today. And these institutions are here for you. And I think whether that be with a pandemic is creating pressure and turbulence, I think um, our legislative community hopefully carries that message to them. And I think we've all worked, tried to work hard to make sure that we both acknowledge where we are, a lot of challenges for folks, but we are actually here for you, not here trying to compete in any way or somehow um, losing our relevance. You know, one of the specific challenges that I heard from multiple institutions, whether it was Idaho State University or Lewis and Clark State College, was staff retention. Uh, and, and you in particular highlighted a lot of specific challenges that are unique to border communities like Lewiston. That's exactly right. The, in the state of Washington, the minimum wage is almost $14.50 an hour. I'm excited about and struggling to pay custodians $12.50 an hour. That's a problem. Our uh, classified staff retention rate, most recent data show it's a 29% loss. Uh, we are, our, our attrition rate in professional staff is 20% loss. Our faculty is 10% loss. Right now it's 
it's hard to have people that want to stay working in higher education in a border community when they can go right across the river and have a very different economic outlook uh, and, and basically stay in their hometown. And so that does make it, it compounds the situation. It, it doesn't make it impossible, but it certainly compounds it. Does the Treasure Valley face those same staff retention issues? I think we do. I mean, obviously we're not a border community, but I think the issue of public servants, while we are all mission driven, we're here for Idahoans. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, the real testament is these are talented, we are, these are talented public servants. And their, their value is seen by others and often private employers as well. And so what I see is um, a lot of talent that if that gap between their desire to serve Idahoans, but economically it becomes such a stretch, that's where I think that challenge is. And I certainly, um, we're all wrestling with how we can maintain parity, even if it's not the exact same parity where the mission plus that compensation can allow people to feel good about getting out of bed every day and coming to work. Well, and I think to, to build on that, Gordon, <coughs> people love living in Idaho. Idaho is, is truly a gem in the nation. And now what we know, because of the ways that folks have been able to leverage technology and remote work during the pandemic, well, they can stay in their Lewiston community and they can be working for Google and they can be working other places. And that is, uh, th that's an added pressure to, to make sure that we are an attractive employment option so that individuals have the work they love in the place they wanna live. Is that salary and, and pay issue something that you can solve without the legislature? I think it takes all solutions possible. And so I would include our legislature and the, the representatives of our towns solving town and local issues. I mean, the, where we come together obviously is one state, but I think that, that recognition of the investment in the people who live in our towns, who are serving our citizens, I think it is certainly um, a component and actually a pretty important one. I mean, it's important. We believe in solving problems locally in this state. And I think a reflection of our legislature is where we want to put those priorities. That's my quick and dirty answer. We certainly will look other places, but we want to start with the places that are, are um, funding the public work that we do as public servants. Exactly. I mean, I, the answer is both and. Of course, we need legislature legislative contributions to helping us move forward. We are public education. And, and that is a very different ecosystem than a private school environment. So, so yes, there's a role for the legislature. We need them involved, we need their help, we need their support. And through that support, what happens is, we're able to continue to maintain our Idaho public education space as, as overall the sixth lowest tuition in the United States. In Idaho, higher ed is accessible and it's incredibly affordable, as well as hopefully as folks have been able to recognize over the course of this last week with the different higher education presidents presenting, it's also accomplished accessible, affordable, and accomplished. And with legislative support, we're able to maintain that space and that better serves Idaho, that serves our citizens. Are the outcomes where you want to be when it comes to student retention and graduation rates? 
That is a great question and it is a nuanced answer to that question. Because I get that a lot. At, at LC State, we have an overall retention rate of just over 60% from uh, year one to year two with student population. That's pretty good. About a third of our population are non-traditional uh, part-time students. So those individuals are working, they have families, they have households that they're responsible for, their lives are complicated and their lives are busy and they're not gonna finish in four years. If it takes them four, six, eight, if it takes them 12 years, I'm excited that they complete their journey and celebrate with them on that endpoint journey. Um, but in terms of graduation rate, the, the traditional metrics of graduation, it's about 38% at LC State. That is not great. But here's something we did, because I knew that question was gonna come up in the legislature. When you look at the four-year traditional student, 18 to 22, 23-year-old, so we took our cohort of student athletes. We said, okay, they're going to school full-time. They have to maintain a certain amount of credits and a certain GPA to stay eligible for athletics. So they're kind of the traditional student. Their retention rate from year one to year two is over 90%. And their graduation rate within the traditional time frames is over is 61%. And their average GPA is 3.29%, almost 3.3%. So when you think about the students we serve across a complex and diverse demographic, it's not surprising that our graduation rate by the traditional metrics is not as exciting as I'd like it to be. But if you look at the traditional student that's being served by this institution, well, we're doing a great job. What's the picture like at CWI? Well, I think, it's a, I think Cynthia has an excellent answer, and frankly, I would rest a lot of my answer on that. I would just say we're designing around student outcomes. And a lot of, you hear this word traditional metrics, traditional mm -hmm. students, not all listeners and viewers may know what that is. Those traditional metrics are often four year, for the four year institution, or graduation in six years. Mm -hmm. We all know that life is moving in a very interesting direction where we have chapters, there may be moments you're coming back to school in and out. And so what I think, Cynthia, if I can even yeah. piggyback is, we're all recognizing inside higher ed that some of those metrics aren't helpful for exactly. communicating the value that's being delivered. So for example, in the community colleges, we're taking all students. That's something we're proud of and by design, designed to do. Not all students have yet even formulated a goal. They know they should go, they're not sure, they're putting in a little bit of that trust. There may be instances where somebody comes in and gets a 12 credit hour certificate. Maybe it's in QuickBooks. Now you can do bookkeeping and you maybe earn a little more and that has you come back to us. That's not captured in traditional metrics, exactly. but we know we're serving people in a better way. But for that traditional person, we have, we have absolutely room to improve, but we're doing a good job if you can broaden the aperture and see what, what truly retention and success looks like. We also talked about career technical education and the future of education in Idaho. To hear our full conversation, visit the Idaho Reports YouTube channel, and you should check it out. It is a great conversation. The Idaho Supreme Court issued a unanimous ruling on Thursday, shutting down four challenges to the state's legislative redistricting map, meaning that the new legislative districts are officially in place ahead of the May 17th primary. The filing deadline for candidates to run for office and for most voters to change their party affiliation is March 11th. Joining me to discuss that ruling is Logan Finney, associate producer for Idaho Reports. Logan, you've been covering redistricting this uh, entire time 
time, real quick, give us an update or remind us what those challenges were about. Sure, so it was four consolidated challenges to the redistricting map. The Supreme Court decided to consider them all at once. Uh, the first was from Brandon Durst, who is a former state senator and candidate for superintendent. Um, and his challenge was based on the fact that the map adopted by the commission split eight counties when he and several other citizens submitted maps that only split seven counties. And that is, has kind of been the guiding concept in redistricting in Idaho is the commission is not allowed to split counties more than possible. Um, other challenges came from the Shoshone, Bannock, and Coeur d'Alene tribes who said that their reservations were split too many times. I believe the, the adopted map splits the Coeur d'Alene reservation twice and the Shoshone Bannock reservation in Fort Hall three times. And especially in Fort Hall, it really divides the main population center of the reservation between um, two different districts. And then there was another challenge from um, Spencer Stuckey who said that um, the county division rules were too restrictive and really tied the commission's hands and they should have been able to split an extra county to accommodate some of the um, community of interest concerns of citizens in eastern Idaho. He said that because of the weird shape of northern Idaho, you pretty much use up all of the available county splits up in northern Idaho and really don't have any options by the time you get to the east. And then the fourth challenge was from Ada County and Canyon County also signed on to it. They said that the map um, divided their county in a unfavorable way where part of the northern areas of the counties are grouped with counties to the north, southern areas grouped to the south, and they said that um, the, the counties were split too many times and it really paired unlike communities of the, the cities in the Treasure Valley with the urban areas of the neighboring counties that they said was unfair. So we have four different challenges that all center on how to split counties and how, how many times you can appropriately split counties, but there were a lot of competing interests that the commission had to balance when drawing these maps. Yes, and ultimately that's what the, uh, the Supreme Court decision came down to was the this incredibly difficult job of drawing new maps is entrusted to the commission and the commission has some level of discretion, which is kind of new actually in this Supreme Court precedence. Um, for a little bit of history to back up, the constitutional amendment to create the redistricting commission was passed by voters in 1994 and uh, the, the census only happens every 10 years. And so that means this is only the third time that we've had a redistricting commission in charge of drawing these maps instead of the legislature. So even though you know, it's been 30 years, this is still kind of a relatively new area of law with room for some changes. There aren't too many court opinions to look at for that precedence. Right, you can say, well, this precedent is 10 years old, it should stand, well, 10 years ago was just the last time that it happened. Just one lawsuit from Twin Falls County. And so, what did the ruling say? Where did, where did the justices err on? Um, previous interpretations from previous courts, you and I discussed the other day that the uh, the members of the court at the current time are all brand new since the, since the previous round of redistricting. And so they said, our predecessors on the court actually kind of read the Constitution wrong where there's an area that says the commission is bound by statute. Um, and this is getting a little technical, but Ultimately, there's a, a section of Idaho code that says you can't split counties more than more than possible. But the uh, the Supreme Court looked at it and said, well, actually, this this was written when it was the legislature that was in charge of redistricting, and the legislature would pass a statute, pass a law that gets signed by the governor, like any other bill. And um, they said, now that the commission is in charge of it, the commission actually is the one who creates a final plan and adopts it. So they said that the commission is supposed to focus on the federal principle of equal protection, which says that one person, one vote, populations in legislative districts need to be as close to each other as possible. 
So in other words, roughly the same number of people in each of the legislative districts. Yes, and that was really the, the primary goal of the commission this time. And the, the Supreme Court actually went so far in their decision to note that this is the lowest population deviation of any plan that's ever been adopted by a commission. And they really roughly got a pat a on the back. Roughly a difference of five 5.7% or so. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but Logan Finney, associate producer for Idaho Reports, thank you so much, and you'll continue following that last challenge to the congressional map. We will have that coverage with our online content. You can find the link at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. We'll see you next week. presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.